So between 1943 and 1946, an American soldier named Lenny Miller and his wife, Diana, wrote over 2,500 letters to one another. And I come to find out that this was not a particularly unusual uh, thing for, the, for that to happen during that period because letters were the only way uh, to communicate. But what makes their correspondence exceptional is that every single one of their letters survived. And their daughter, Elizabeth Fox, actually collected and preserved, and then later, uh, they later became the basis for her, her book entitled, We Are Going to Be Lucky, The World War II Letters Between a Soldier and His Wife. And I'm just going to read a couple short little excerpts from, from then. August 20th, 1943. Dear Sweetheart, patrolling is good. I'm getting used to the jungle. I can head off through dense thickets and forest, drop down steep hillsides, cross mud banks and streams, trip over vines without falling, and rush through brambles and brush without a scratch, and all without losing direction. Lenny. And here's one from Diana. Dearest Lenny, darling, every time you write about the furlough week, I get goose pimples. You're Diana. I guess they called goosebumps that back then. So writing 2,500 letters uh, to one another uh, was a source of comfort for this couple during the war. And this fall, we're preaching through the book of Daniel, and we've been saying all along that it's a source, it was meant to be a source of comfort uh, for the Jewish people who were in exile at the time uh, when the Babylonian Empire had conquered them and taken them uh, into their own country. And so God's people, which had, who had been conquered, needed to hear kind of over and again uh, that God was the true king of all kings and that he alone, his kingdom alone, would endure uh, and stand the test of time. And in chapter 5 today um, comes this idiom uh, where we, we have this idiom called the writing on the wall which means that something unwelcome or uh, something uh, kind of uncomfortable is, is imminent. Something ominous is about to happen. And that stems from this chapter. Um, and the question that we're going to explore today is, how can an ominous message, how can the writing on the wall uh, also bring comfort? So we're going to look at that question in two simple movements. So how, how did the writing on the wall bring comfort to the people in exile back then? And how could it possibly bring us comfort today? And those, with those two things, those simple things in mind, let's listen carefully to the reading of God's Word. Our central text for today is found in Daniel 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, 
his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen declared, Let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, 
Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, or hear, or know. But the God, in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Okay, so the first point is the writing on the wall uh, and the comfort that it brought, brought back then. So the setting of Daniel 5 is 30 years, some 30 years after the events of chapter 4, where God had humbled King Nebuchadnezzar in this most dramatic way. You just heard uh, some of it retold by Daniel there in the reading. And chapter 4 closes uh, with the king uh, proclaiming this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. So that's the closing uh, verse of Daniel chapter 4. And now let's contrast that uh, with the opening of chapter 5 in this feast uh, of King Belshazzar. So this feast uh, stands out from sort of the the ordinary feasts in the ancient world uh, for a couple reasons. And the first one is that uh, kings would have typically dined with a set number of exclusive guests, kind of apart from the crowd. But here we see the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar sort of partying with everyone, partying with everyone in the crowd. But more than that, calling for the vessels of the temple was to make a mockery of the God of Israel. That's really important for us to see. Uh, you see, the, these, these vessels were taken uh, around 70 years before by his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, as trophies of war. Uh, it was essentially to display uh, the Babylonian victory over Jerusalem and its God. And Belshazzar wants to do one better than his grandpa, 
He wants to display how insignificant and worthless the God of Israel was. And to add insult to injury, the king and his guests, they toast the idols of Babylon, the, the gods of Babylon, using the very same vessels that were from the temple of Israel's God. So this feast was blasphemy of the highest order, an act of defiance against God himself. And God responds right away. We see in verse 5, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So I want you to think about the scariest movie you've ever seen in your life. Some of you, uh, movies just don't scare you. I am not one of those people. And in high school, uh, some of my friends basically tricked me into going to see The Ring. Um, they led me to believe that it was related to J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And so I was expecting to see like Sauron and, and Gandalf, but they didn't show up at all. Um, you know, I essentially had my hat kind of over my eyes the entire movie, pretending to watch. Uh, yeah, I'm that guy in, in the scary movie. Um, you know, but after it was over, I could kind of eventually move on. I'm still a little scarred 15 years later, but, um, you know, it's just a movie, right? I could move on. So this king was terrified because he saw something or really someone that he never expected to see. And many scholars think that this, this expression about his, his limbs giving way, his knees knocking together, means that he actually soiled himself from the terror. Uh, have you ever been uh, so afraid that you soiled yourself? I don't think many of you would be able to say yes, um, but on a side note, uh, my wife and I are actually in the middle of potty training, and so soiling out of fear uh, has actually happened many times the last couple of weeks. Pray for us, please. We need it. Um, so even if the king cannot read this message, he's clueless, he has no idea what it means, but this king had just acted in defiance against the God of Israel just moments before. And so he's smart enough to know that the message on the wall, whatever it means, is probably not like a Hallmark card greeting. Uh, it's probably a negative message of some kind. He's terrified. He's terrified. And so he calls the sorcerers, the enchanters, to try to figure out what it says. And nobody, not one person, could read the message on the wall. But then the queen mother appears, and she remembered a Jewish exile who had helped Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, interpret a dream some 30 years before. And Daniel is summoned and apparently insulted by Belshazzar in, in verse 13. He says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. So essentially he's putting Daniel in his place. He's treating him like a captive. And Daniel responds curtly uh, that he didn't want the gifts or the promotion um, as the king had offered anyone that could interpret the message. Hey, I offer you third place in my kingdom. I just need to get this thing to be understood help. He said, I don't need your gifts. I don't need the promotion, but I will interpret it for you. And in verse 18, Daniel begins uh, his interpretation by first reminding Belshazzar of 
the, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. He says that Nebuchadnezzar's greatness was a gift from God and that it had been taken away until he learned humility. And to me, verse 22 really stands out. Even though the king knew his grandfather's story, he had not humbled himself before the one true God. Uh, so most of you watching this uh, remember uh, exactly where you were on 9-11. But what about your kids? Um, something that was so pivotal to our country, to sort of Western civilization as we know it was changed forever on that day of infamy. And someday I'm going to have to sit down with my children and explain to them what happened. You see, the further we get away from something, the more it can tend to fade with importance. And the king had a choice to learn from his grandfather's humiliation, from his mistakes, or come face to face with the justice of God. And the king chose the latter. And God on the wall wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And in verse 26, Daniel begins to interpret it. He says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided and will be given to the Medes and the Persians. So just as God had written on the wall, Belshazzar was killed that very night. Babylon and its king had fallen. So why would this very ominous story bring comfort to the people of God in exile? Especially, and we've talked about this in prior weeks, given uh, that the exile was, was really the result of their own rebellion, their own sin. So why would this story of a king being judged for his pride, for his mockery, bring them comfort? It's simple. It's because it meant that nobody, even kings and his subjects, are above the justice of God. Nobody is above his justice. So as I was studying for this uh, sermon, I, I learned that the fall of Babylon happened almost exactly a week ago today. 2,559 years ago, we celebrate uh, the 2,559th anniversary on October 11th of the fall of Babylon. It's kind of funny how that worked out. But again, as I said earlier, the further we get away from something, 2,500 years plus, the less important it can seem to us. But not, it's not just the distance from us. It's also, the, it's kind of hard to relate to a king. Uh, and it's hard to relate to a king who throws a rager like this. Um, and so how do, I, how do we bring this a little bit closer, a few steps closer to our own lives? And that's my final point. Is there a comfort here for us today? So in John 8, there's a story about a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and she is brought before Jewish religious leaders for this trial, and Jesus is present. And the leaders say this, In the law, 
speaking to Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, women caught in adultery. So Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And they were referring to Deuteronomy chapter 22, which listed uh, adultery among the sins deserving capital punishment, which was commonplace in the ancient world. And the text goes on, the story goes on. This they said to test him. What do you say? What do you say about this? That they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. In the midst of her trial, Jesus bent down twice, and he wrote something on the ground with his finger. And we're not sure what he wrote, but we are sure that it changed everything about her story. Listen to what happens next. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, it says that the laws had been written by the very hand of God. And this woman had made a mockery of these laws. She had rebelled against God by being unfaithful to her husband. She was a sinner. And she was therefore deserving of God's judgment, just like the proud king. Adulterous, sinner, idolater. That was the writing on her wall, as it were. So we can ask, why didn't this woman deserve the same fate or receive the same punishment as the rebellious king? Had God just kind of decided to look the other way? Was he inconsistent? Friends, the reason why this woman wasn't condemned like the king was because a greater king had come to be condemned instead of her. In herself, she was doomed. The writing was on the wall. But in Jesus... She was safe. Jesus had flipped the script on her story, changed her life forever. The human predicament is that we are all proud. We're just like the proud, idolatrous king, and, and we're actually very similar to this woman who was caught in the act of sin. We all make too much of ourselves and, and put our trust in the wrong things, which is to make a mockery of the one true God. The message on all of our walls is ominous, too. We all deserve the fate of the proud king, God's eternal judgment and wrath. But friends, this is precisely why Jesus came to 
earth. Listen to this from Romans 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Bible is saying that all have sinned, all have been weighed, all have been balanced and been found wanting. And that means that we all deserve the just punishment, judgment from God. Jesus is the just God in the flesh come to earth. And Paul says that this just God became the justifier, the one who makes us right before God, who makes guilty people into righteous people, condemned people into beloved people. Jesus is that person. And how does he do it? How does he make a condemned sinner into a beloved son or daughter? We are justified, Paul tells us, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's the cross. The cross is where Jesus absorbed the wrath of our sin and he took it upon our, on himself. The wrath that we deserved, he took. That's what propitiation means. The abatement of wrath. He received the judgment of God, not us. And how, Paul tells us, how, we, how do we receive this gift? He says it's simple. He says twice, it's by faith. By faith. All we have to do is believe that we need the gift. All we have to do is want the gift, and it's ours forever. It's that simple. Later in Romans, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So just like the woman from John 8, there is now no condemnation for those of us who have put their faith, put our faith in Christ and said, I need you, Lord. I can't do it on my own, but you did it for me. If you rest and rely on Christ, the one who was condemned for you, you will never be condemned. So let me ask you, let me ask you, what is written on your wall today? What are words or themes that jump to mind about yourself? Maybe you know exactly what God has written or God would write on your wall if he visited you because you rehearse it over and over, day after day, hour by hour, possibly minute by minute. Not good enough. Self-obsessed apathetic. That's what would be on my wall if not for Jesus. If not for Jesus, 
that's what he would write on my wall. Because that's what I'd say to myself every day. If not for Jesus, that's who I am. What about for you? What words, what themes jump to your mind? I'm going to give you just a, a couple seconds to sit on that question. What would be written on your wall today? And as you're thinking, let me read a famous quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when we think about God? Look, from this sermon, from Patrick's sermons, um, from Bible studies, uh, from, from different groups that you're a part of, I pray, as a pastor, I pray that the person that comes to mind is this just God who also justified you on the cross, that loves you that much. I want that person to come to your mind, yes and amen. But there's something that's more important still than what comes to your mind when you think about God, and that is what comes to God's mind when he thinks about you. That's the most important thing of all. What comes to God's mind when he thinks about you, when he thinks about me? You see, if we try to live apart from Jesus, we will always be weighed, we will always be balanced, and we will always, always be found wanting. It doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account right now. It doesn't matter what your portfolio is like. It doesn't matter how healthy you are or your family is, all that's important, but it will never, ever tip the scales enough. And don't get me started on church attendance or how much you read your Bible. It's not even close. We will always be found wanting. But here's, here's the point. That's actually good news because every other religion in the world says, Try your hardest. Don't do these things. Do these things. And you might, you just might get in. You just might be good enough. Who knows? But you might. Keep trying. Christianity says you will never, ever be good enough. But there was one who came for you that is. And he loves you. And all you have to do is believe in him. And you too will be good enough because of him. Because of him, not because of you. Not because of what you've done, not because of what you haven't done, but because of what he has done in his life, his death and resurrection. The writing on your wall is changed forever. And now on all of our walls, by faith, is in Christ now and forever. That's the gospel. You're in him. He's that good. He's that good. And before we close, I want to give you just two super brief uh, takeaways First, what God thinks about you matters most. I want you to take that away t today. I want you to think, what, what you tell yourself about yourself, does it reflect what God thinks about you? If you're a Christian today, you're a beloved son, you're a beloved daughter, you're his friend. Does what you say about yourself, the themes that you tell yourself day in and day out, does it reflect what God thinks about you? Because what God thinks about you matters most of all. And furthermore, 
It should change what we tell ourselves about fellow believers. I've been really discouraged the last year, the last six months, about what I see fellow Christians speaking about other Christians. It's as if their political opinions, their, their ideology is what matters most about that person. Instead of what God thinks about them mattering most, their opinions about X, Y, or Z, or who they're going to vote for, somehow matters more than what God thinks about them. And that should not be the case, because what God thinks about us matters most, rather than what we think about them. And so let that inform the way we talk about each other. You may not agree with everything. We may not agree with everything another Christian does, but we're still brothers and sisters. That's who we are. And I think the world would really take notice uh, if we sort of embodied this reality, again, that what God thinks about us matters the most. And finally, God's word is his message of comfort for his fearful people throughout history. For you today. If you're fearful, I think all of us are on some level. Some of you more than others. But his word, God's word, is his message of comfort for you, for me. So remember that couple uh, from World War II that wrote all those letters during the war to comfort each other? And remember why Daniel was written to comfort exiles? Like, just like the Jewish people of old, we too are in our home, away from home. We're waiting for our true home, namely Jesus, to come back and to restore all things, to make all things new. So we're awaiting for him, and he has written to us his message of comfort. In these most troubling days, we have his word. It's one of the primary ways that we hear from God and are comforted and are challenged and are transformed is by his word. So let's build his lives, our lives, on his comforting words together. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the just one. We need a just God. We all long for a God who will right all wrongs and make the crooked things straight and wipe every tear from every eye. But we also need a justifier, someone who comes to make things right. And you did it in the most unlikely way, Jesus. You gave yourself for us and you conquered the grave. So I pray for everyone listening to this today, watching this video, Lord, that they would put their trust in you. All they need to do is, is ask for the gift of Jesus, and it's theirs forever. Lord, thank you for changing the script on our lives through the gospel. I pray that we would live in that story, the story of your good news, that we would challenge each other to do the same, that we would love each other fiercely and love you most of all in these most troubling days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.